broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Midtown Business Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Midtown Business Radio Show. And I'm um, joined in studio by some folks from Now Account. They're uh, a company that we've hosted on the show a number of times. I got to know Laura through the Midtown Business Radio Show, and since that time, She's come on and uh, shared some information with us about how they help companies in the B2B space get access to uh, capital that they have that's tied up out in uh, uh, their accounts receivable, aging well beyond those 30-day terms that most businesses hope to be paid within or or under, ideally, when they can. So uh, I'm joined in studio by a chairman of the company, John Hayes, and uh, VP of Finance and CFO of Now Account, Archie Jones. And it uh, sounds like we're going to be talking about helping businesses be able to prepare for the end game, so to speak. Many companies want to be able to, if they're privately held, take the golden parachute and sell to some large company <laughs> for hopefully some inordinate amount of money at some point in time. But uh, others want to be able to transition that business and keep it in the family, so to speak, or, or to people that are close to them. So it sounds like we're going to be able to share some information to those business owners out there in the community. And we've got a lot of those here around the Atlanta area. I know I've gotten to meet a few of those be able to help them begin at the front because that's a mistake that I've understand that many of them make, whether that's the structure of the company or whatever it may be, choices they make along the way, particularly in the early going, if they have an idea where they want to, where to try to end up, there's some things they want to want to be thinking about as they go in. So CW, I think you hit it right on the head. Beginning with the end in mind is exactly what we want to talk about. And I think the other piece of it is a lot of the things we're talking about, while they also uh, will help with the exit, I think they also increase the value of the business as you go along. And so these aren't just kind of dress it up for sale kind of items. I think these are the kind of things that business owners, entrepreneurs um, ought to be thinking about as they run their business. Um, just by way of you know, quick background, I am the CFO of Now Account, um, but I've spent most of my career uh, in private equity, and so have a lot of experience having bought businesses from business owners. So we'll share that perspective as we talk today. And then John Hayes, our our chairman and one of our founders, um, I think has sold more than a few businesses. So he'll keep <laughs> me honest on uh, on making sure we get both viewpoints uh, in the room and on tape. Well, for the folks who haven't had a chance to catch one of Laura's appearances, just give the folks just a quick overview of uh, if they are in that B2B space and they are a company that, that, like we've talked about, maybe some of those accounts are you know, doing pretty well. They stay pretty close to terms, but uh, there's some others. They have a handful that may be starting to get out in that 50, 60, 90, forever kind of phase. <laughs> um, and talk about how you're able to provide them quick access to that capital, really for a fantastic fee, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah. Well, CW, thank you. The, uh, the reason that Laura and I started Now Account uh, four and a half years ago is that um, we both saw the problem that exists in the economy, which is basically 60 years ago, the banks created the modern credit card system, which works great for retailers outsourcing their consumer credit. But what's happened during that time, even though the banks have completely taken over consumer credit, 98% of consumer credit in the U.S. today is managed and funded by financial institutions. Only 3% of trade credit is managed and funded by financial institutions. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a, and, and it was really that incredible dichotomy that caused us to first notice this market. The other aspect of it is that total consumer credit in the U.S. is about $5 trillion a year in transactions. Total trade credit transactions in the U.S. 
are almost 35 trillion. So it's the market is seven times larger in when you add up all the consumer credit, automobiles, mortgages, financing refrigerators, as well as credit cards. On credit cards themselves, it's two and a half trillion. So the the market in for the uh, trade credit side of the thing is 12 times the size of the credit card market. Well, given that huge market that exists in the trade credit side of things, I mean, why aren't the financial institutions, the banking centers, why are they not wanting the piece of that pie? Why are they why are they not participating deeper? I well, I think they do want a piece of the pie, but what we've observed and where we saw the market opportunity was that they tend to try to move into merchant services for trade credit by pushing the credit card. And that's why you see such an incredible emphasis on on getting buyers to use the card in business transactions. I mean, the, all the the MasterCard ads a couple of years ago were yeah. priceless. Right. The airline miles, you know, premiums, rebates, those are all incentives to try to get buyers to use the credit card in a B2B transaction. But the reality of it is that what the business buyer has today is very hard to beat, which is free credit. Because when you sell a company goods or services and give them a net 30, net 60 day invoice, you're a bank. You are funding them Except you're not a very good bank yeah, because right. you're not collecting You have collecting limited interest. leverage. I mean, you really. No leverage. I'm exactly not going to give you any more of my product. I mean, what kind of option is that? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> they really know that they have you, you know, in the, in, a, in a disadvantaged position. Well, and and it's it's not – the funny thing is I don't think they do it to deliberately to put pressure on their vendors. They do it because they have to. It's amazing. If you look at the capital structure of American businesses today, what you'll discover is that they owe their vendors more than they owe the banks. Vendors are larger lenders to the American economy than banks are. And that's and it's just the way it is. So you're not going to get Coca-Cola, Home Depot. My favorite is Boeing, by the way. And the reason is that Boeing owes its vendors six times what it owes the banks. And if Boeing had to pay interest to its vendors like they pay interest to the banks, Boeing's profits would go down 29%. So for Boeing, I I, I like to say that accounts payable is the most profitable division of Boeing. It's more profitable than satellites, more profitable than airplanes, more profitable than missiles. Maybe not drones. We don't know what they make profit on drones. But next to drones, maybe. Boeing's most profitable divisions accounts payable, and they can't afford to give it up. So the, the, what, the, what the banks have been trying to do for the past 20 years, and that is to push the credit card as a solution for trade credit, just hasn't worked. Because when if you're a buyer and you put a transaction on a, tra- a credit card, all of a sudden you have traded free and flexible trade credit for a deadline and the possibility of interest and penalties. And so when Laura and I and the team we organized uh, in, in late 2010, early 2011, realized that the only way to make this work was you could not change trade credit for the buyer. What you had to do is provide a merchant service to the seller that gave the seller essentially what the credit card gives them today with absolutely no change on their buyer because the buyers won't change. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did with NowAccount. 
And talk about just real briefly, and then we can start talking more about you know the in-game side of, of transitioning our business. The but, successful exit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So, there are a lot of exits, but the successful <laughs> exit. Right. Just real quickly, if, I mean, if I'm listening, because I, I, a question, because I've I, once I became familiar with the model that you provide here with Now Account, I've I've, I've become a, a kind of a free brand ambassador. Actually, there's been a number of companies that I've told about it to you know say, hey, you need to check into it. There's some misperceptions out there because I know that uh, if you look at factoring, for example, that's one of the places where uh, when you get involved sure. with a factoring company, then uh, from what I understand, I've got limited knowledge and it's only come through talking with Laura, really. But uh, from what I understand that in those cases, all of your accounts get rolled in. You've got to let the let the buyers all know, hey, I'm involved with factor company X. Um, but but one of the big things is one you have to commit to a certain period of time. That's true. And then you got to put all of your accounts in, regardless of how well they're paying. Um, that's not the case here. But that was a perception that I, a company that I know about that has some accounts out there that are aging. Right. I've got to put all. I've got to put my whole account or all my accounts in there. Can you talk a little bit more just specifically about that piece? Yeah, well, f- factoring can be a very valuable service for companies, um, and there are really, really two kinds of factors in the U.S. Um, I like to use the analogy that talking about factoring is a little bit of like talking about um, a drug store versus a drug dealer. Both are retailers of drugs, <laughs> but uh, have a very different perception in the economy. Um Traditional factoring, what we call true factoring, which is done by Wells Fargo is the largest in the country, CIT, BB&T, F-Trans here in Atlanta, several other businesses offer true factoring. What that basically is is the outsourcing of the risk on the account receivable to the factor, and then the factor or an affiliated bank will make a loan to the company. So it's a it's a form of asset-based lending that has pretty intense measurement and, and management of the collateral, the assets. There's another kind of factoring called recourse factoring um, or receivables discounting, which is just a straight loan. The seller still has all the risk of, of their customer not paying, and if the invoice isn't paid after a predetermined time, usually 90 days or so, it gets charged back to the seller. And, and both Traditional factoring and true factoring are forms of lending. They end up on the balance sheet of the small business as a loan compared to revenue accelerators, which is what now account is, and the credit card merchant service system is, which are true sales of the asset. So if you take a credit card for payment or you use your now account for payment, that's not a loan on your books. You convert your AR to cash, and you're, you're out of the transaction. Um, the, the problem that's occurred over the last 30 years is that factoring, true factoring, used to be a fairly common uh, service of most banks. In fact, when I was practicing law in Atlanta, we represented what was then CNS National Bank, which is part of Bank of America today, and CNS had a factoring business. SunTrust, Trust Company of Georgia across the street, had a factoring business. And it was very common for banks to offer that service. But over time, that's consolidated as the banks have grown larger and focused more on real estate. They've moved away from asset-based lending and moved away from traditional factoring so that today you only have half a dozen banks in the country that still offer factoring programs, 
and their floor is very high. In fact, we were talking to Steve Lewis at BB&T the other day, and he said that they have moved up to a $5 million minimum wow. in their asset-based lending. Right. That'll put, a, put out a reach for many. That's not a small business. I <laughs> yeah. mean, that's a, that's a mid-market business. So yeah. it's just it's, – it's gotten to be that uh, traditional factoring is just not serving the small business. There are a few exceptions. F-Trans here in town, for example – which is a company that I started uh, over a dozen years ago, does is a true factor serving the small business market, but there are not very many of them. Uh, the, the the dilemma then is that a small company. Let, let me back up for just a second, if I can. There are we've done a lot of work in the last year or so, looking at and trying to define exactly what the sources of capital are for a business, and that actually relates directly to the topic today, because the what you select as your sources of capital are going to have a big influence true. On, yep. on how well for the you reason you just described it. without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Right. And actually, the, it, the the we prepared an interesting chart which starts at the top with the cheapest source of capital, which is cash, coming in. Uh, with you get paid with cash, currency, a check, ACH, debit card. That's fairly inexpensive. Right, your own cash from your own operations. Right. Right, and you have you have a little bit of cost to that. I mean, you can currency. You have the risk of, of employee <laughs> theft and bank and uh, and a forgery with taking a check. It could right. be a bad check. Um, but then you move to the next level, which are revenue accelerators, which is the credit card merchant service system and and now account. And then the next level down. And by the way, as you're moving down this chart, you're basically increasing the cost of of not only dollars but of hassle, of the time it takes to obtain right. it, the time it takes to maintain it. So the whole – so you're increasing cost in terms of dollars, risk, and administration. Sure. The next is a whole category, well, of grants. And people say, well, gee, that's strange that you would put that on the list. But we do it for two reasons. One is to say that there are alternatives to debt and equity, which is what most people think of the sources of capital. But – Grants are a real source if you're in the right kind of business. And we're sitting here in Atlantic Station just north of Georgia Tech, and there are dozens of private companies that get grants from the government every year through programs that Georgia Tech operates. And the, one of the reasons I have it on the chart is about six times as many businesses in the U.S. get a grant, a for-profit business getting a grant from the federal or state government than get venture capital. Wow. I mean, no most idea. people think. I mean, most people think venture capital is the end game. It's not in most cases. Only about twelve hundred businesses a year in the U.S. get a venture capital investment, but over seven thousand get grants. Then the next big category is debt, and that goes from the cheapest, easiest debt, which is accounts payable, a interest-free, flexible loan from your suppliers, and then you move down through that of unsecured debt various forms of secured debt, including asset-based lending and factoring and merchant cash advances. Um, and then you move into a category of guarantees, which are not a unique form of debt, but they impose another le level of risk because if you were to go get an SBA guarantee, for example, in your business, you would sign a personal guarantee. And there are a lot of – most small business lending involves a personal guarantee. And then finally you get down to equity – and in the equity category, you've got retained earnings, you've got what the owner puts in themselves, you have friends and family, angel investors, venture capital and private equity, and then 
finally, different forms of public equity, including crowdfunding, the Reg A and the new Reg A plus, and public offerings. So as we think about sources of capital and you move down through that, that range, um, you, the business has got to make a decision, where am I going to get the capital to grow my business? And the decision they make of what they're going to plug in there can have a huge impact on not only how they run the business, True. but then what their exit is. That's exactly right. We've been talking with experts on uh, trade credit and giving people in, in the business-to-business community access to their accounts receivable um, funds that they have that they've been waiting on, as as, as uh, John was talking about giving their their buyers uh, <laughs> interest-free loans, uh, giving them access to that capital so that they can grow and, and do the things they need to do for their business, including take larger orders. Um, one last question about that, uh, John, just to clarify the, the notion that I've got to roll in all of my accounts. That's not the case as far as your solution goes. I'd talk about the, the, that piece of it because I can, I, can I can tailor it both in time that I'm involved with the program as well as what accounts that I'm involving with it real quickly. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the, the underlying difference in what Now Account is doing and what uh, various kinds of asset-based lending programs are doing is that they're debt, and Now Account is a true sale of an asset. And that has two important implications. One is for the business itself, the seller itself, because if you're taking on debt, you've got an obligation that's got to re- be repaid at some point, if you have an asset sale, it's just you're trading your receivable for cash and you're done with the transaction. The other implication is on the side of the party providing the funding. And the reason that traditional factoring programs and recourse and uh, asset-based lending and recourse factoring programs are so uh, burdensome is that from the lender's perspective, there are tremendous risk in if the company goes into bankruptcy. Right. Because you're, just, you're a creditor. And even though you may be a secured creditor, you're in there fighting with other creditors over the assets. And so that's why you see factors typically require that all of the receivables be assigned to the factor, that the invoices carry notices of assignment, that you've got this whole set of what most businesses think is extremely extremely burdensome requirements, it's to protect the lender. And having viewed this both as a lawyer to the lender and and, uh, being involved in this for a very long time, I completely understand their point of view. But it does put a burden on the business. That's one of the nice things about what we do. It's What we do is a true sale of the asset. Therefore, we don't have the same kind of, of issues that a lender would have. So am I only selling some invoices? Am I selling the account? What am I, what am I, well, in, what am I selling? In, in, in the Uniform Commercial Code, uh, an account is the right to receive payment. And so the invoice is a piece of paper that represents the account. Okay. I mean, us Episcopalians would say the invoice is the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual account. <laughs> but the, um, uh, what we require is that when you pick a customer, you, you give us that, all the invoices for that customer I see. until you decide to take the customer back out. And the reason is that the only change you have to make in your invoicing is you have to change the remittance address to our post office box. Right. And if that was invoice by invoice, then the poor customer would never know what address to send it <laughs> sure, to. Sure, sure. So, and invariably get it wrong. So, <laughs> so, yes, so if I've got three clients, company A, B, and C, 
company C is a slow payer, they pay me at 60 days or worse, then I just say, I'm going to sell this account to you. And so the, so my invoices that, I'm, that I've got out there for company C, they get paid by you to me, less that 2.5%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as how long, let's say that C starts paying their, you know, whatever happens for them, they start coming in closer to my terms, and, and I don't need to continue to take that discount, if you will, or take that, you know, pay that fee to, ha- to have that service, then I can say, okay, we're, we're good to go on C, and then I take it back. You, you could, although nobody ever does. Because, I mean, well, <laughs> I mean rarely does no, and, company and, C change their ways. Well, <laughs> what, what happens is that most of our clients start exactly that way. They take the most adversely selected of their customers, the slowest pay, and what they realize pretty quickly is that the 2.5% we're charging is less than their cost of running an accounts receivable system. Mm-hmm. That by the time you add up the cost of funds, the cost of risk, the administrative cost, what does it cost me to do collections, what does it cost me to keep track of all this, that for 2.5%, I'd just rather have now account do it. And that's the reason that once retailers moved over to the credit card, they didn't go back. I got you. I mean, you don't see a retailer saying, you know what, I think I could save 4%. Only. That's, no, 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 no. Worse than that, I'm going to open up house accounts again for all my customers. Oh, yeah, that's you ever great. seen a retailer do that? Oh, not no. a minute. Yeah. No. So, so, okay, so now we've gotten a backdrop against which, you know, we know that there's some there's some challenges for the business out there. And you, you mentioned the fact that which way we go, which which mechanism we use to get access to the funds that we need to grow our business and do the things that we need to do can have some implications on our topic today, which is the end game. What are we going to do once our company is really, it's it's hit the home run. We've, we, we've had it for a number of years. We've grown it to where it needs to be. And now I want to either give it to my family or or even or even better in some cases sell it to <laughs> sell it to Facebook um, for for a few million dollars whatever the case may be talk about let's kind of apply that into you know, the end game that you 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 gave a, a hint to sure I'd, I'd actually like to make one uh, one quick comment before we transition and you know John talked about the size of this market and and the huge need in this market for small businesses and we've got uh, we're announcing today, uh, the only reason Laura isn't here, she's in Austin, Texas, announcing uh, some partnerships. Uh, because, again, it's a huge market with huge needs and a lot of folks who want to partner with us to help us help small businesses. Um, she is at the Women's Business Enterprise National Council, um, their national conference and business trade show today, uh, announcing a partnership with Now Account, focused in on their population of women women-owned business um, members, uh, and also in conjunction with that with Coca-Cola. Uh, so Coca-Cola, who John mentioned as you know, obviously a huge corporate buyer, right. is also very much interested in driving additional business with uh, small and medium-sized businesses. And particularly with those disadvantaged businesses. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. And as that has announced their commitment to that and is further evidencing that commitment by partnering with, with Now Account to help Put, uh, to help accelerate revenue for those clients and allow those clients to do more business with Coca-Cola. So what I assume that's going to do is, obviously, awareness is going to be a big thing. Obviously, the the, the women that are participating with the, the WeBank um, organization are going to get to know that this is out there. I'm sure that's half your challenge. It is. Is just letting businesses know about it. Because, I mean, it sounds like, as, as I've learned about what you do with Now Account for the business community, it's, it's, it's one of those that... For most, it seems like it would be a no-brainer. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, that, well, that's right. One of the problems, though, is when people first hear about it, uh, it sounds too good to be true. Yep. And and because what they're 
they're trying to put it in a bucket of something they already understand, and it doesn't fit in the existing bucket. And the first reaction is it just sounds too good to be true. It's too inexpensive for the service that's being delivered. I must be missing something. Yeah. And that's why it's really, really important for us to have that message delivered by somebody they trust. And that's why we partner with major companies like Coca-Cola, Cisco, Ingram Micro, and others to promote it to their supply chains as well as financial institutions like credit unions and banks to promote it to their customers as, as well as, like for example, the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, the Atlanta Metro Chamber of Commerce, Invest Atlanta, DeKalb Chamber, Gwinnett Chamber, Douglas Chamber. A lot of chambers have endorsed now account and are promoting it to their members. And when a business hears about it from a source they trust, what we hope is that they'll at least uh, give it 60 seconds to understand <laughs> yeah. that it's not too good. To yeah, that's right. And, and I, was, I was reading the, the press release here about this partnership with WeBank, and one of the statistics it talks about is women-owned businesses, women own nearly one-third of small businesses, but they account for only 7% of venture capital, 5% of total small business loan dollars. So I would quite say they're, a disparity. they're very smart. <laughs> you think it's because they're choosing to stay away from those things well, or, or because they're having challenges getting access? You know, it's really interesting. The National Federation of Independent Business does a survey every month of, of small and mid-sized businesses, and the number varies between mid-40s to mid-50s, but consistently about half the businesses in the country say they don't want a loan. They would rather right. They would rather grow their business without debt because a loan has risk, yep. particularly if you have to personally guarantee the loan. Yeah, I don't want them getting my house, too. Uh, well, that's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, I, we, have a, we have a very close friend of ours who a number of years ago had a uh, – this is always a great story to tell in the spring when the Vidalia onions are coming out <laughs> <laughs> because they were in the agricultural packaging business. They basically bought material from Amico and the chemical companies, and they converted it into bags and boxes and stuff, and, and a big part of their business was in – uh, central South Georgia around Vidalia, selling to the onion growers. And they went and got an SBA loan, and one of their biggest customers, a third-generation onion farmer, went bankrupt. And, of course, they're sitting out there as an unsecured lender, $85,000 worth of bags. They well, they were left holding the bag. <laughs> and, and it wrecked the business. I mean, the guy had to go back to his suppliers and say, guys, I, I don't want to file bankruptcy, but I can't pay you. They said, we understand. We're just going to write it off. But he had an SBA loan that he paid on for the next 15 years. And, you know, so I think, there's, I think there is a, uh, a negative to any kind of debt. And you've got to work that in to make sure that you are doing the right kind of debt. You're getting the right kind of loan for the right purpose for your business. Uh, and the other is that Venture capital, even though people talk about it is a great nirvana of, of many things, and there are a lot of young high-tech companies think that yeah, that's what you've got to do, that's what Google did, et cetera, they don't recognize that many of the great company technology companies out there never had venture capital. Right. They grew it from, from other sources of capital, whether it was from their suppliers, from the, the equity they built up in the business. Strategic or, partnerships. Strategic partnerships, right. Exactly. Because both of those, debt and equity, regardless of what form, have a huge impact on how you run the business, whether you can run the business or somebody's going to take it away from you, uh, and then how you exit. That's true. So kind of walk me through it. I'm, I've got a company. 
when should I start thinking about what I want to do with it at the end? I mean, do I? Do, what kind of timeline do I have to kind of begin <laughs> to make month, these choices? The month before you started. <laughs> All right. Let, let me give you a little. Let me give you a little set of little context. Um, you know, I think the, you know, there's an emotional piece that's tied to it as well. I mean, a lot of founders of businesses, um, they think of their business as their baby, and you know, so there's this emotional attachment. There's a lot of time, energy, and blood, sweat, and tears that went into starting that business. Uh, and so it's very personal from that standpoint. The other piece is it is a business, though. And so it also is a big piece of their income and also probably their biggest asset. And so you've got this, um, you know, this, this, uh, you know, those two sides kind of at tug of war with each other. I've got this very personal relationship with this business that I basically breathe life into. Um, but it also is a financial asset for me, and it's hopefully going to be a part of not only my retirement, but maybe even for you know funding some future generations as well. And then the other piece is uh, you usually only get uh, one opportunity to sell it, uh, unless you're a serial entrepreneur like John and a few others. But even then, you still only get a few shots at it. Mm -hmm. And so it's important that you get it right. And um, there's no set timeline on it. I think it is, and we'll touch on this in a little bit, I think you've got to have a plan. But I think you've also got to be flexible uh, and looking at where the market is for your business uh, because businesses, markets for businesses get hot and cold, uh, whether that's geography or across a set of industries. Um, and then it's also very personal as well. Where are you in your life stage? So if I, if like right now, this is a, a small privately held business and, and it's for all practical purposes family owned, um, how how significant are the differences? I'm sure there are are some major ones. If I if I'm thinking right now, I want to transition this down to to the kids, versus my real goal is to build this into a media conglomerate. I'm going to be the next Turner Broadcasting and have Turner Broadcasting come by me. Um, what are the what are the differences that I need to be thinking about in in terms of each of those types of endpoints? That uh, you know, in terms of structure. Um, different things like that that come into play that will affect that. Right. Well, I, I would say if you're you're thinking about one of your alternatives, transitioning it to your kids, make sure you grow smart, responsible children. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The um, we one of one of the businesses that I grew, um, uh, One Coast Network, actually grew by acquiring 23 existing businesses, and we bought them all from guys who were in their 50s and 60s, uh, whose choice was either there it wasn't a real market until we created it for their businesses and we were doing a roll up, but their alternatives were either to sell it to their idiot sales manager or their idiot children, mm -hmm. is what I used to hear from them <laughs> over and over. And, and uh, in most cases, the children didn't want it. And in the other case, cases, um, they weren't comfortable because they basically would have to sell it to their employees on debt and take right. an earnout, and they were just not comfortable to get anything out of it. So we were a great alternative for them. Uh, but you know, it's most businesses don't get sold. Most exits are graceful shutdowns of the business, and then you've got the two extremes on the on the either side. One is the successful exit by selling the business either, uh, in, a, in rare cases, by taking it public and selling it to the public, but in most cases, selling it to a private company. And at the other end of the extreme, the business goes out of business 
ungracefully owes creditors and it's a nasty shutdown. But most of them, most businesses that close are in that middle category of just simply We've been know, doing this for 20, 30, 40 years, and now we're not going to do it anymore. That's right. right. Yeah, we've, we're or, smart with our money. We've got our nest egg seal. Or, or, or the sale, they, they sell it. But it's not a home run sale. It's just sort of a grass. <laughs> right. You know, it's more of a. It's kind of a sale of working capital. Right. And, That's right. You yeah. don't have to close the doors. There's still some place for the employees to come, but you're not taking a, a bundle out of it. So, gotcha. and I put those in the middle category. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest difference in an outright sale versus a transition of various forms is the big payday at the end. Is there a, um, you know, is there a, a sizable check that's written there at the end? From from the perspective of corporate structure, LLC, corporation, whatever you know, the different types of company structures. How much do those types of things come into play for the either of these? N- not at all. Then, well, I, um, of course, the LLC is relatively new. It's only been around since the mid '80s. When I started practicing law in the '70s, LLCs didn't exist, um, and so your your forms really. He was bar- five. He was five, by the way. When he was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, uh, I mean, it, and uh, I mean, well, they invented the typewriter. While I was, it was great. Uh, the uh, you know, the back then, uh, your choices were partnership, sub-S corporation, or a C-corp. Sub-S's are always problematic because they carry tax burdens with them, and they, it's harder to sell a sub-S than it is to sell a LLC or a, a C-corp. Um, my, my advice uh, would be do it as an LLC because you essentially get to write your own rules Instead of having 200 years of corporate law governing the, exactly what the structure is, <laughs> LLCs basically say you write up your operating agreement and that becomes your your charter. Um, but what what I advise people to do is that if they're going to do the LLC, structure it like a stock entity, not just memberships. Go ahead and call the the shares, shares, call them shareholders. You can do that in the operating agreement. You don't have to call them members. Now, if you if you truly believe when you start the business that there is an opportunity of selling it to a larger company for a big upside, then a C Corp is probably the way to go. And a Dela and incorporating it in Delaware. I mean right. there are just too many uh, everybody understands Delaware corporate law. There are too many subtle nuances to Georgia corporate law that make Georgia not a good place to be incorporated. Well, without diverging or digressing too much, <laughs> why doesn't why don't the other states go, wait a second, we're losing I mean, I'm sure they there's ha- some measure they, they of have. fees or whatever that they would be saying, you know, we gotta we gotta just copy what Delaware is doing. That way we get some of that business. Well they have. I mean in fact to a very large extent, most states have kind of copied Delaware, but they got such a head start to begin with that that it is the default yeah, jurisdiction. It's the standard. It's yeah. the standard. Um, but but even like Georgia would tell you that well we we are very much like Delaware. We have the same laws as Delaware. That's not completely true, and there are just some subtle nuances in Georgia law that make Georgia uh, a more difficult place to be incorporated than Delaware. If I start out as an LLC, can I change? Sure. Yeah, it's very easy. There's a there's a process that lets you convert right. from LLC to C corp. Is there is there a strike point that you see that? This is when you should start thinking about that kind of a transition. Now, you know, um, I don't know. What, what do you I don't think, think so. I don't think so. Um, 
the the one of the other points I wanted to touch on around organizing the business, and John and I talked about this in the office yesterday, was as important as the structure, and I agree with him, LLC is is the is probably the way to go. Also, just getting aligned amongst the owners. If you've got multiple owners, one of the things that I think of as a theme is make the business easy to sell. And one of the things that makes it real hard to buy a business or for for the seller to sell a business is owners who aren't on the same page. So as important as the the actual corporate structure, I think having an idea when you start the business and invest together in the business, whether that's money, time, energy, and all of the above, is also being on the same page. Are we going to transition this smoothly? Are we taking we're going to take it public? Are we going to sell this to the big player in the market? I think that's that's key for for a lot of these small businesses, particularly with multiple owners. Do you have tips for those business owners that have you know several you know one two three or two three or four whatever members or partners at whatever the term may be in that case for how to approach that conversation i mean what 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 should they be thinking about okay there's two or three or four of us here <laughs> well I mean, and i i think that i think the, the there there needs to be two or maybe three fundamental conversations or, or topics in initial conversations one is how do you perceive the business being operated? I mean, do you actually see a hierarchy where one person is CEO and other people have other roles? Or do you see it operating like a partnership where everybody has an equal vote? Um, the second also relates to operations, and that is how much income do you expect to take out of the company versus what are you willing to leave in it to grow? And too many times you've got a very divergent set of interests. You've got one partner who's perfectly content to, to take a small salary and have the equity build up in the company so the company can grow, whereas you've got another partner who, you know, is, is you know, has got the boat, the big house, <laughs> the, the second wife, all these expensive things, <laughs> and uh, uh, needs more cash out. And then the other topic of conversation is, what is your horizon? I mean, are you building this to try to sell it in, in five to seven, ten years? Or do you see this as a lifestyle business right. where we're going to be here for 20 or 30 years? I think those are three really critical conversations that frequently do not happen. Mm-hmm. And if you're not on the same page in those, that, that probably is at least a – uh, an indication of a pause uh, and see if you can get on the same page or not because you're you know they don't get better with time those those questions don't age well if you aren't aligned to start with now account vp of finance and cfo archie jones and chairman of now account john hayes are joining us in the studio today we're talking about how businesses should begin to strategize towards the end game whether that's transitioning it over to uh, family members when it comes time uh, to, to do that or possibly going the other way and seeing if they can't successfully sell the enterprise to somebody, hopefully for some measure of a windfall if, uh, if they're fortunate enough to do that. And we've been talking about some of the things that as a business owner we need to be thinking about to make that flow a little bit more smoothly because as they've already been sharing, uh, the, the, the choices that we make as it relates to debt vehicles, if we have to use those to... Uh, corporate structure and then just general philosophies among the partners and stakeholders within the within the company can certainly come into play and really throw a wrench in the gears when it comes down to I would imagine particularly when it comes down to selling it to somebody that's the probably the place where right. things really start to come unraveled and do you see some common what 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 are some of the places where people really make their big mistakes that end up kind of 
causing some angst and Here, delay. Here's at least, um, you know, and I'll, I'll throw out a couple of, of tips I've got for sellers. So these are the things that they, they sometimes miss. You know, it's not about them. It's about the business. Again, we talked about most of the business owners are also founders and starting to get that separation between the individual slash founder and the business um, and asking that critical question. Can the business run without me? Um, your ego says, of course, you know, I'm, I make all the sales and I may be making all the decisions that doesn't transition very well, because if you're not going to show up on Monday, how's the business going to function? Yeah. And so, um, as a, as a seller of a business, as you start to get in that mindset, you need to start putting in, whether it's the, the team, the processes, successor planning, exactly. Okay. So that you've got something broader than, uh, than a sole proprietorship because you can't retire if uh, if you've still got to show up to work <laughs> on Monday engine, for the, the business. Not going to go fast if you step off. Okay, all right. Um, so having somebody that you're kind of grooming that uh, that will become that next key employee to keep things moving, at least for critical functions. I think that's key. I think it's key. And, and I think one of the difficulties in that is that the founder is is frequently wearing many hats and sometimes it's very hard to find a replacement that can do all of those things mm -hmm. and that and of course know, you look at sgna when you start adding those if right. you have to buy them individually right. to, to piece it together exactly right and yeah. and therefore the, i mean the company has to be a certain size i think to make sense in it being it being sold that's why most companies end up just sort of closing down and going into this you know no payout transition because they're not large enough to really have created that critical mass that makes them valuable. If when we say make it easy to buy, are there what are we talking about there? What makes something easy to buy? Obviously, if the if the if the founders the partners are are all of the same accord in terms of their approach to it, that clearly makes it simple. But I mean, other things. What what are other things that make a buyer go, oh yeah, this is gonna be awesome. And no the seller debt. too. No debt. <laughs> That's right. Or little debt. Um, agreements among the shareholders, either in the kind of stock that's been issued or other agreements that make the sale easy. Uh, not having um, sort of hidden liabilities out there, either right. in terms of the kind of business contracts you have in place. You know, long-term arrangements that are a damper on profitability. Um, but I, but I think. Uh, what really makes a business attractive are sort of the fundamental characteristics. We had a, a interesting lunch Archie and I did yesterday with Tom Shields, who is our uh, one of our uh, early investors and now accountant on our board of directors. Tom was the chief investment officer at Invesco, and since he retired, he has has become a diligent student in what makes businesses valuable. And what he said was he thinks there are five things: a high level of profitability in the business itself with minimal capital requirements and substantial free cash flow. So you've got to be able to show that. Minimum price competition. Not no price competition, but, but minimum. minimum. Right. A product is valuable to the customers. The customers are going to use it. A substantial advantage over existing businesses. And then he's put a fifth one on that, which is somebody who can use the Internet to displace legacy businesses, like we're doing here, for example. Um you know, those are interesting to think about. He says the characteristics that make a business unattractive are low levels of profitability, a high capital requirement, low level of free cash flow, significant price competition, and then those that are hurt by the Internet, like Amazon, 
just basically killing local the bookstores. Book right. Okay, I got gotcha. Local retailers. Exactly. And so when you talk about the price competition, we're talking about commoditization essentially. Sort of like if you look at uh, the Atlanta area and our emissions businesses. When I first came here ten years ago, it was twenty five dollars. Now you can get it for thirteen. Yeah. Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> you got it. So, so yeah, and, when you, and your cost of delivering that service is about fifteen. That's not a great. Yeah. And you know, and then obviously there's little you can do if you're an emissions business to differentiate yourself from the guy down the street. But look, the the drive through here is really nice. Right. Um, not uh, legal anyway. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so you say, we, we pass clunkers or something yeah, like that. <laughs> so I see, I see, and from from that perspective, I mean, I guess that's. Don't position yourself in a in an industry where there's going to be heavy price competition if you can avoid it. And if your horizon is ten or twenty years down the road, that's really hard to predict. It is. I mean, who who would have thought twenty five years ago that newspapers would be an endangered species? Yeah, dinosaurs for sure. I mean, it's just it's very hard to predict how and, these things are going to flow. And so when we talk about legacy businesses, we talk about. The, I guess that's a great example was using the the Barnes and Noble and and the other booksellers that just really got crushed by this fantastic online marketplace that now sells everything, everything. <laughs> well, and the interesting thing about it is that and and, and I, Uber's a great example. I think Borders and Barnes and Noble are another example. The taxi industry could have done Uber. I mean, they could have done right. a really easy to use iPhone summon service, uh, easy payment, routing, maps of where you're going, all the things that Uber represents, the taxi cabs could have done it themselves. Barnes & Noble, what, 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 it's really interesting, what uh, Bezos had when he started Amazon was two things. He had Ingram uh, Publishing, Ingram Books warehouses across the country, that had an online catalog that called iBooks, nothing to do with Apple, but it was called iBooks. Every medium-sized or large bookstore in the country had access to it. It was a green screen, but it was an online book catalog. You could go into Oxford Books over here at Peachtree Battle 25 years ago and look up books on iBooks. So we had access to iBooks. He had access to the Ingram warehouses that would ship single books on demand, okay, which all of the retailers had. Barnes & Noble had it. Uh, Borders had it. Every local bookseller had it. But he had something else they didn't have. He had the initiative to take that and go do a web interface to it and create Amazon. And I also think, you know, and, uh, and business founders and, and entrepreneurs can take some heat from this. He also didn't have that built-in infrastructure. I think their their main same thing with the taxi cabs. I mean, the fact that they owned stores meant they, they felt compelled. Yeah, they I have them. to put the the yeah. product through the store, and I and I and I had kept them from thinking differently about their business or their industry, um, and so afraid of change that they actually you know left the door open for a new innovator to come in right. and take share from them. Right. Um, I mean, that's why there's a, you could do a whole. You could do actually a hundred radio shows <laughs> on innovation, but it's one of the reasons that big companies only do incremental innovation. They don't do radical innovation because they're trying to protect their infrastructure. I mean, it was you, you go back to the IBM PC. I mean, the the fact that IBM was willing to do a PC that uh, threatened the mainframe. I mean, the fact that they were able to get it through right. uh, in in the early '80s and get it created is remarkable. Because most large companies, I mean, every other big company, NCR, 
uh, boroughs, everybody was looking at the possibility of building a PC, but they all felt like it would cannibalize their mainframe business and didn't do it. IBM did it. And, and you see that over and over and over. I mean, the fact that the newspapers didn't create the online content, they, they waited till it passed them by and then are rushing to catch up. It's just it happens. It happens every day, and we see it in our customer base. Yep. I mean, that's who that's who we serve are the innovators and entrepreneurs and small business owners who do have that flexibility and uh, that inclination to try something different uh, as they launch their business and grow their business. A comment that I that I heard make was create an auction when it comes to selling. Talk about that. Um, I think a big piece of that is is know that you have a series of options. You asked the question early on of what are my available options. It isn't just I can give it to my kids or I can sell it to my nearest competitor or uh, whatever or the guy uh, the guy or gal that I uh, hang out with at the country club. That there actually is in a lot of cases a broader market than you may even think for your business. Um, I tell the story of a, a business. Um, I was I was running M and A for a large public company, and we had a specific piece of technology we were looking for. And there was a little company in New Zealand that had it, and they were just selling their product and their service in New Zealand. And the owner probably thought his exit opportunities were on the island in New Zealand. Um, we found out about it, and I actually went over there and bought the business. So we were in a he had a buyer network or a potential buyer network that was so much larger than what he ever thought about. He didn't even think of us as a direct competitor. He was doing something different with the technology, but it would have cost us a lot more to build that than it sure. cost us to buy it. And so I, as a, as a, you know, as an experienced buyer in businesses, I think too often sellers are a little bit too myopic in who they think they can sell their business to. And in some cases getting some good outside advice, or at least just, you know, casting a broader net and asking the question of who might find interest in this business. Um, and it's probably somebody in some cases that uh, that you never heard of and you didn't even think about. They may be even in a tangential business to yours. So, Archie, when I'm uh, in that place, I'm starting to get down toward the, you know, the end game or, you know, midway through, we're starting to make some of those plans. When This is our plan. We're going to grow it and sell it. Are there resources for me as a prospective seller that would kind of give me access to some of that to, to help me stand above the fence that I can see? I can see this horizon right here. Right. I'm on the island of New Zealand. Right. That's where all my buyers are going to be. Are there resources out there that kind of help me look over the horizon that, that I'm aware of that might find your business, for example, as a potential buyer that I can... There are. I think there are a number of them. I think it starts with probably what uh, a lot of business owners and founders have is their closest network, some of their uh, their legal advisors, uh, their financial advisors, whether that's personal or in the business, including their CPA. Um, and then there's also business brokers and, and M&A advisory firms who will you know, do a lot of homework for you to help you think about. They're in the business kind of like selling your house. They are an agent who are in the business of trying to get you the maximum value for your asset. How much do you give up by going down that route? It costs you. I mean, it, it, there's a fee and a commission, but I think in most cases it's well worth it in terms of being able to, again, cast that broader net, and they're, they're getting paid on maximizing the value. Um, the other thing that ties to that is also as you're getting close to the end, I think it's a good idea to test the market. So before you, you know, I've got to sell it on December 31st, you know, the year 2016, test the market uh, as you're getting close to that. Because, again, different environments um, yield different opportunities to be able to sell it. So I'd say within the five-year window of when you think you want to sell it, 
put some test feelers out and see what happens. And I think a point Archie made a second ago is exactly right, and that is that um, a lot of larger companies would rather buy either technology or an established revenue stream than grow it. Yeah. I mean, it's just a lot easier you know, not to take the hit on earnings for two years growing something as opposed to buying it uh, that can be immediately accretive to earnings. But the so a lot of businesses that get sold for a profit are sold kind of within their industry mm-hmm. and or very close to their industry, whether it's a, a true roll up like like we did uh, a dozen years ago or or it's just an accumulation of businesses that are somewhat close. It's a measure of overlap. Yeah, and, and therefore industry associations, whether it's I trade shows yeah. or the, the industry itself, is a pretty good place to look and to talk to people. I'm sure there's probably some measure of consternation when it comes down to pricing my business. But from what I've understood, obviously depending on the, the vertical that you're in, but I've heard anywhere from three to eight or even more, but somewhere in that three, four, five times EBITDA is probably <laughs> relatively it all depends it all depends. it all depends so it all depends on the market i guess who's you know well, if you I can mean, create a fight somebody really wants to go crazy for it whatever well and it i think the largest thing that is the if you're looking for a single uh driver on the ebitda multiple it's your rate of growth that's exactly right because the faster you're growing the higher your ebitda Opportunity is, yeah. I mean, if you're doubling in size every year, you're going to command a higher EBITDA than if you've got 5 or 10% growth. I mean, we bought these 23 businesses we bought, uh, we were pay- basically paying three to four times EBITDA. Okay. And, uh, but they were, none of them had more than a 5 or 10% annual growth. Okay. Uh, so, so, the, so the faster your pace of growth that you can maintain, is there a, how far back do they look? I mean, you know, you can't just, I'm sure you can't just say, woo, last year we grew 25%. The last seven days were up. <laughs> we were going gangbusters. What do they usually look at I think a couple of three years at yeah. least. I mean, okay. you've got to see a real trend there. You've got to yeah. see that they're, that, you know, the businesses can't just have a banner year and say, well, okay, then we're going to sell now. That's right. No, well, that's right. I mean, that's right. And, uh, and, and, and part of the problem that a lot of companies have right now, I think, is they're just coming out of the recession. Yeah, that's true. Barely getting out, and they had you know depressed sales, depressed earnings the last few years, and they're just now getting to the point that they're healthy again. Probably helps them have a better looking trend line over the last two or three years, <laughs> I guess, since they yeah, started down what, in the trough. Because what I mean, if you if you're buying to you know uh, what you're going to do is you're going to say, okay, you know, what's this business going to generate for me next year and the year after? And obviously, that trend line is really really important. And you're going to ask the question goes back to what Archie said: How much of that trend line is dependent on the guy selling me? The the business. I mean, if if all of it is the result of, of his personal energy and he's right. going, I've got a I've got a discount it because of that. That adds some risk. You're exactly right. Yeah. So I guess that's one of the key things that we can take away today is if you are that business owner and the business really is you, then you got to start probably earlier on uh, ahead of that sale point that you've kind of got in your mind to try to get somebody else or some other key you know people or players in place right that can not only keep it going but maybe expand beyond what you're capable of just to to make that strike point because you <laughs> your strength could end up being sounds like the the weakness of a sale well and, and it's you know a part of a under a broader umbrella of concentration right you want to have diversification across your business so whether it's who makes the sales you want to have that be more than one person including you you want to have more than one customer 
even if you're growing and it's and it's a large customer, yeah, the fact that, that there is away. one, that customer yeah. goes away and you've got a problem. Um, and so whether it's, you know, customer, product, uh, sales force, you know, the other parts of the team where there's delivering the service, um, you know, there is a, a value attached to, again, that diversification takes out a lot of risk. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming down to a few minutes left. What, what uh, final tips would you have for that business owner out there that's, trying to decide what they're going to do at the end point. I'm going to give it to the family, going to sell it to sell it to Google, sell it to Facebook, whatever it's going to be. What, what, what final tips would you want to leave them with here before we have to jump off? Well, I would say that if your children have not been involved in the business for several years and have a clearly demonstrated desire to continue it and run it, don't even consider it. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, that'll just unravel. That, yeah. yeah, the thought that you're going to, you know, get your get your son or daughter to come in, you know, in the last year that you've got it and hand it over to him successfully is just a that's that's not going to happen. Gotcha. I think the thought I'd leave them with is even though we've talked about a lot of these topics as preparing the business for sale. These are also the things that are create value in the business while you still own it. And so you can almost, when you, not almost, when you start the business, if you start putting these things in place, not only will it help you at exit time, but it'll also help you build a bigger, better, more profitable, more valuable business uh, so you can enjoy the ownership, not just at the end, but along the ride as well. Well, tell folks how they can get in touch with you uh, at Now Account so that they can begin to draw on some of this expertise, I imagine, as they get to know you, but then also get their business positioned so that they can have access to the capital they need, whether it's to add people, take bigger orders, whatever they need to do. Uh, it's it's an easy website. It's nowcorp.com, nowcorp.com. Or if you need more letters, you can do nowaccount.com. Either will get you there. <laughs> Same place. I know you're on Twitter, and that's at nowaccount. You'll have all, to talk to somebody one. else. That is it. That is it. I'm tied in there. They're on social media, and, and uh, of course, we're already linked in with them since we've been having their folks join us on the show on a number of occasions. If you haven't done so already, uh, make sure that you sign up with the uh, Midtown Business Radio Show on Twitter and on Facebook. We're at uh, MidtownBRX and Facebook.com slash MidtownBRX. And the other thing I would advise you to do, if you're a business owner listening today, uh, make sure you subscribe to the Midtown Business Radio Show because weekly we are bringing in business experts uh, who can either, A, offer you a solution for your business that will help you operate more profitably, whether it's bringing uh, revenue at a, at a faster pace on the top line or maybe helping you drop more to the bottom line. That's what we're all about here. And then think about all the businesses that you're going to be able to meet that might end up being the perfect client for your business. So make sure you get over to either iTunes under the Midtown Business Radio podcast or you can uh, subscribe to the uh, show on the RSSS link there on the right side of the Midtown Business Radio show page. So to uh, Archie Jones and John Hayes of Now Account, uh, thanks to you guys. I know you're busy coming over, sharing some great information for the privately owned business owners that we're, that we're uh, broadcasting to here through the station. And uh, really appreciate you. And, of course, Laura, uh, good luck to her and her conference out there. It's pretty cool that you all uh, were able to secure that type of partnership to be able to get greater access to folks out there because uh, you know the the disadvantaged business uh, enterprises i know that uh, they're they're looking for opportunities I and mean, one of the things we talked about we partner with the uh, gmsdc they're here sure. on the studio i was talking to a minority uh, owned uh, business person the other day and and they only recently found
found out about GMSDC. So there's the, the resources like this. Awareness is certainly a key. So I'm really pleased that we're able to uh, share this information with everyone out there. So, guys, thanks so much. Glad we could be here. And to everybody who you. made us a part of your day by stopping by to check out the show, we really, really appreciate you. Make sure to make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. See you then.